We are starting a new series today, and uh, as I was thinking about this, I thought, interesting just to, to share with you, um, it was almost a year ago this fall that we actually put this series sort of on our calendar for this time frame, and I don't, I don't know if you knew that we work about a year in advance in terms of uh, where we feel like God might be taking us as a church and what things we need to talk about and what are some of the things that are, God's put on our hearts. Um, but it's not like me rushing on a Monday trying to figure out what we're going to talk about this weekend, right? Like we, we work in advance. And about, like I said, about uh, maybe 10 months ago, this series came to mind. And it came to mind specifically because at the time, we were still kind of walking through the end of the pandemic, the end of the last couple years, um, and just thinking through the idea of how do we reclaim some of the things that we felt like have been lost? And so um, that was what the heart of this series was all about. Now, I didn't have the words for it then, but just recently in the last few months, I, I kind of heard a combination of phrases that really helped me uh, kind, of, kind of be okay with where we are uh, when it comes to, in relation to the last few years in terms of the pandemic. And this is these two phrases. Uh, most have moved past the pandemic. And that's just true. And it's okay to say, you know, life moves on, life trucks forward, it doesn't stop. Like, as much as they tried to make life stop, it doesn't stop, it's still moving forward. And a lot of people have moved on, right? They've moved past uh, the pandemic. But I've also noticed that many are just not over the pandemic, meaning that we're sort of still discovering things. We're still discovering effects of two years of isolation, two years of uh, economic shutdowns. Like, there's still a lot going on. And so I just want you to, to hear those two phrases and say, it's okay if that's you. Um, we know many have moved past it. That's awesome. We're kind of, we know life moves forward. Uh, but not everybody, because many have, are still not over sort of the effects of, of, of the pandemic and over those few years and the result of what happened over those few years. So again, we, we place the question here, can we reclaim? Uh, what's been lost? And, and that's a great question to ask. There are some things that people lost that they don't want to reclaim. You know, they don't want to go back to. I, working five days in a week in a cubicle, nobody has wanted that. I mean, that's just one of those things that many people have said, I'm done with that. You know, I'm done with not taking vacation. Like, I'm, I'm going to take every bit of my vacation, including some paid time off, to do some of the things I want to do. And there's some other things that people have kind of pushed to the side and said, I'm glad we're not picking those back up. But there's also a lot of things that became a new normal that we don't really want to be normal. There's a lot of things that kind of showed up as a new normal that you're kind of like, I don't really want that. I want to reclaim some of what I felt like was lost in those years. And so this series, we're going to talk specifically about the idea of reclaiming this idea of community, reclaiming community. And again, we, we put this down 10 months ago. What does it look like to reclaim this? Now, in that period of time, a lot of things has happened. One of the things that I don't think you guys are aware of, and I'm not trying not to get bogged down here and spend too much time here, um, but there was an interesting report put out by the Surgeon General. It was in the beginning of summer, end of spring this year. It's called the epidemic or our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. And it's the Surgeon General's advisory on the healing effects of social connection and community. All right. So he it's an 82-page report. I encourage you to go read it. I had a hard time getting through the whole thing, but that's just because I was challenged to kind of look and see what you know what were they saying. Um, but here's a lot of the things that you know are, I kind of highlighted or took out of the report. 
He was trying to talk through the effects of the isolation, effects of the lockdowns, effects of, of, of the last few years. And one of the things they tried to measure was the stress uh, in terms of mortality. And I don't know, this feels like an odd way to measure things because it, uh, if you're over 40, it doesn't feel this way. But if you're under 40, it does. Because we used to measure everything based on how many cigarettes we smoke today, right? Our parents did anyway. But it said that social isolation, the effect on mortality actually, they said, would have been a result of during that two-year period of time, three-year period of time, smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of what it did to the physical body. Uh, time alone, they, they talked about the time people spent by themselves. It was already on the rise, about 30% in the first two decades of, this, uh, of the 2000s. Um, but in 2020, it went almost double that. It went 20 plus more percent in terms of what people were spending in terms of their individual time alone. And then they, they really zeroed down on this 15 to 24 in-person socialization over the course of those two decades, and because of 2020, went up 70 plus percent in terms of, in terms of how they communicate. Now, it, it's, it's interesting because the Surgeon General writes it in such a way that we, might, that we should be surprised by, this th- by these things. Uh, I'm not surprised by it at all. But um, he looks everywhere for the cause. He looks everywhere for what, what's the root cause of these things. And he doesn't find any root causes. He just kind of talks about several different things. And, and, you know, we've talked about some of the things even in the past series about radical individualism and how, we're, how our culture has been trained to think about, you know, you can't tell me how to think. You can't tell me what to believe unless, you know, unless you think wrong. And then we'll definitely get to tell you that you're wrong. And so um, there's a lot of that, you know, that, that, that's at play because we allow ourselves to be divided over those things. It's an okay thing to be divided over. Uh, digital communication has, you know, the rise of that, the rise of social media, all of these things trying to, you know, being not just a, not just a, a source of why this happened, but also they weave it into possible solutions. So I'll, I'll just walk you through some of the solutions that's in the report talking about how do we help this, right? How, how do we help this? Well, it's uh, social media. You know, they tried to say social media is a great way to do this. And, you know, what they found through studies is that social media did offer uh, what they called uh, kind of pseudo communities of affiliation, but not personal connection, right? So you can have you can have friends all over the world. You can have friends all over the country. Yay, pandemic, right? Yay, let's let's keep our connections alive. And it just didn't have the effect that they felt like it should have. So they they kind of realized that there were government programs and social bubbles that they had to talk about. By the way, uh, this I'll pick on him just because this is the one that's in the report. Um, Chris Murphy, who's a senator in, Kentucky, in Connecticut, he proposed legislation that he wants uh, us to have a national strategy for how to promote social connection. Uh, and, and when I read that, I was like, I don't want the government doing anything when it comes to telling me how to get connected with people, let alone keeping me from connecting with people, right? Like, I, didn't want, I, don't, want, I don't want either one. Um, but, you know, I don't know if you remember this during the pandemic, they talked a lot about social bubbles. They talked about your family social bubble and this social bubble and your work social bubble. And you're going to see more of that language based on this report. You're going to see more of that language coming out in terms of how the government can help us, you know, with this epidemic of, uh, of loneliness. Uh, one was tribes and tribes of common interest. And 
I think you've recognized this. We have as a church talked about it. You know, there's a lot of tribal mentality around your gym and your your clubs and your sports affiliations and your political interests and your social uh, justice causes. There can be a tribal sense of this is my rock box tribe and my this tribe and my this tribe. You know, there can be that kind of thing. However, it goes back to, again, kind of this pseudo-community feel where there's no actual buy-in. It's just sort of an affiliation of common interests that b- bring us together. And so when we're together working out, woohoo, yeah! And then we just, you know, whatever, right? Like, it's, it's just kind of that idea that, like, it, it, it has these little high moments of tribal community energy, but it doesn't actually fulfill the personal need for, for community. This is according, again, to the Surgeon General's report. Now, what's funny is I love the fact that they go on to talk about the fact that, you know, Gen, Gen Y and Gen Z and Alpha are also investigating things that, that actually mirror traditional communities, you know? Because how, how much more new cutting edge could you be than to look at traditional communities, right? It actually said, like, they're considering you know, what benefits there are in traditional communities. Now, again, I want to re- re- repeat, this is, this is not coming from a Christian perspective, okay? This is, this is a secular report talking about the fact that, that, that the younger generation is kind of warming back up to the idea of, well, what about traditional communities? Where do they get the concept of traditional community? Well, it's from a guy named Robert A. Nesbitt. Robert A. Nesbitt, he's an American sociologist, wrote some books in 1950 and to the 70s, um, and they're pulling from his sort of argument from European and Western ideas around uh, community and how communities are shaped. And, and I love this because this is, this is very interesting to me, someone who grew up in the church. This is how he describes traditional communities. Shared values, moral authority, hierarchy in terms of family, right, the family structure, and respect for the sacred. Amazing, brand new information, right? Like this is, this is what he historically is seeing. Is like, hey, this historically has been what community has been made up from. And even 75 years ago, he was talking about the, the degradation or the degrading of community life and family life. Uh, and people were opting for, at that time, they were op- op- opting for less personal like corporate things or union, job unions or, you know, government agencies. Like they were, they were looking for the quick ROI and benefit that they could receive now versus the long-term benefit and investment in their family or their church or their synagogue or, or whatever the case is. And so here's the quote from the book uh, called The Quest for Community. The quest for community will not be denied for it springs from the powerful, the most powerful needs of human nature, needs for a clear sense of cultural purpose, membership, status, and continuity, consistency. So I look at this and I just go, you know what, That's, it's so interesting to, to kind of gaze in how the world is trying to figure stuff out, you know, because the Surgeon General looks everywhere but under the kitchen sink, right? To, hey, we've got to solve this problem with loneliness. It's a public health issue. Guys, loneliness is not a public health issue. It's the result of something deeper, right? It's it's the result of something else that's missing. And I want to kind of take us back again through the scriptural idea of what what did God create when it came to the heart of community and what it means for us in terms of social connection. 
and interactions. So please uh, note, this, this is your scripture card this week. It's in the front of your um, seat, hopefully in front of you. Uh, it's on the front row uh, on the seat. But I want to tell you a little bit different about this card. Over the next several weeks, this is the scripture we're going through today. And in the highlighted area is what we're going to read together in just a minute, Ecclesiastes. Uh, but on the back of it, we, we gave you the, the scriptures. We call them the one another scriptures. And it's the law of Christ. You'll see a little bit more of what I'm talking about today in a minute. But that's, this is something just for you to put on your table, on your fridge, in your car. Maybe take a verse a week and just read it and devote it to memory. And maybe just kind of consider all these one another's that we're called to as a community of faith. Ecclesiastes 4, we're going to jump in. And I do have to kind of give a brief uh, idea. Ecclesiastes is a book by Solomon. Uh, and it's a... It's a it's a book about wisdom and foolishness, a book about wisdom and folly. So you're going to find this constant contrast between wisdom and foolishness. Um, and in chapter 3, it's the very famous ecclesiastical verse that even non-Christians know. There's a time for every season, turn, 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 you know, a uh, time for mourning, a time for dancing, a time for... So that's in chapter 3. And then he goes in to talk about sort of community and socialization, but he talks specifically at first about the injustices of it. That there's a lot of injustice that happens in social uh, communities, uh, and he does that in terms of chap end of chapter 3, and he kind of continues on in chapter 4. That's the reason I'm, I'm kind of giving you that background. Uh, this beginning of chapter 4 is kind of this idea that it continues. Again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun, and I saw the tears of the oppressed, for there was no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power, and their victims are helpless and therefore, I concluded that the dead are better off than the living, and most fortunate are even those who are not yet born, for they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because of their envy for their neighbors, right? This, too, is meaningless, like chasing the wind. And I love he gives two quick examples here of like, you know, you're motivated by success because of your comparison and your envy for one another, and that's a negative part of community. It's a negative part of social interaction. He's like, but then you can go one of two ways. He says, a fool folds their idle hands, leading them to ruin, meaning you can sit on your butt and do nothing, and it's gonna, that's a problem, right? He says, or better yet, or sorry, and yet better to have one handful of quietness than two handfuls of hard work and chasing the wind, meaning that it doesn't do any good to go hard at it your whole life and, and, and work yourself to the bone uh, for no reason because you're chasing the wind, Versus not having at least one handful of peace, having some quietness and understanding. And you're like, so he kind of gives you this contrast when it comes to work. Now, in verse 7, he changes it into the next part of social, socialization. And he says, I observed yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. One more example of foolishness. This is the case of the man who's all alone, without a child or a brother yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can, but then he asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It is all so meaningless and depressing. Basically, now he's talking about somebody who forsook family, like just to, just to try to gain as much as this world he could and wealth that he could, but he missed out. Verse 9 says, two are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person fails... The other can reach out and help. But someone who, fall, who falls alone, or sorry, not fails, but falls, yeah. The one who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. 
but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. And he goes on to talk a little bit again, he switches gears, but he continues to talk about kind of the effects of kind of social connection and the wisdom and folly that's there. But I love that he, this is, the, this is Solomon, the wisest man outside of Jesus, right, who ever lived, kind of writing about this idea of what's it look like in terms of the fabric of how God united, united us and kind of created us is that two are better than one and three are even better, right? Community is at the core of who we are. And, there's, and it's not just because of some sort of out there reason, it's useful, right? It's beneficial for us. It's not just a, 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 an ideal. It's like, no, this is for you to experience the benefit of socialization and community. And then Jesus comes along and not only enforces that, you know, where two or three are gathered in my name, like, you know, it's going to be church, right? We're coming together. You could accomplish so many things. But he also says how we treat one another is a direct reflection of our love and how we treat God. So this is what Jesus says. He says, I'm going to give you a new command. Love one another. And as I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone's going to know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, this is different than the great commandment. The great commandment said, I want you to love your neighbors as yourself. People who don't look like you, think like you, talk like you. Okay? You're going to love your neighbors as yourself. There is a call to love. But this is a very specific challenge to his people. And he says, you know what? You're going to love others the way I loved you. And how well you do this, how well you exercise this, how well you, you kind of express this is going to be the way that people know that you're mine, that you belong to me. Not how much you declare you love me, not how much you, know, you, 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 you devote to me, but how you treat one another. Basically, he said, you're going to have to love them the way I love you. And then Luke records for us the early church. How'd they live this out? How, what did this look like as they were living out this command of Christ, the law of Christ? And it says um, that all the believers, this is chapter 2, met together in one place. They shared everything that they had. They sold their property and their possessions. And in this way, they shared money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. But they also met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Why were they enjoying the goodwill of the people? Well, because they all knew that they belonged to Jesus because of how they were living this out. And I love that it says, each day the Lord added to their fellowship. What a great word. To their fellowship, those that were being saved. Because this was the picture of the church. And so, I'll, you know, for those of you who've been raised in church, you might know this, but for those of you maybe revisiting or not understanding, maybe you're, you're searching for something, the local church has always been synonymous with community. That's what it is. That's what it's always meant to look like. You know, in the early church, they didn't, they, you know, they weren't smart enough to have denominations, right? They weren't as wise as us to separate on doctrine and things, right? They just had Jesus. That's all they had. And so the church of Ephesus was the city of Ephesus, and churches meeting in homes and Christians gathering at the temple to worship. That's it. And so from there on, I mean, we're talking about when you look through history, from every small village all the way through, you know, early centuries and empires and, you know, medieval times and across the board, like, 
the church was always synonymous with a community of people, a community of faith. People who came together, who were bound together because of who God was in their life. And that to me is one of the things that, that, that really helps us go back and say, why would we even want to reclaim our understanding of community is because of, again, the usefulness of it and the way in which it, it, it encourages us and the way in which it calls us, again, to the, all those one of the scriptures, calls us to obey the law of Christ. Here's, if you were to Google this today, and I would challenge you to do so, and say, what are the building blocks of a community? What are the characteristics of a community? What are some of the things that make a community? You're going to find two of these three things. And I'm going to tell you why they'll differ in just a minute. But I, we call these the ABCs of community, right? There's accountability, there's belonging, and there's care. There's accountability, there's belonging, and there's care. Now, you Google that, you're going to find belonging and care on every single list you find. But the new iteration or ideation, if you will, of pseudo-community in terms of what our culture wants to define as community is they want to take out the A of accountability and put A, acceptance, right? Like, I need you to accept me. Again, that's part of our radical individualism. Can't tell me what to do, what to believe, what to, you know, whatever. And we have a very, and again, people have a very bad understanding of what we mean by accountability in terms of scriptural accountability as a group and as, and as a community. But they'll say, no, 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 we don't want the bad stuff of accountability, so we'll replace it with acceptance. And here's the problem, though. Again, going back to the, the research by the Surgeon General, every pseudo-community that kind of takes away this important aspect of accountability, you remove any skin in the game. You remove any demand that it requires of each other. You remove the co-laboring, if you will, or the co-missioning, if you will, of our purpose under God. If it's just acceptance, then I don't really have to, I mean, there's no skin in the game. I can be as easily in as I am out. Now, belonging and care, everybody wants. But accountability, that's where we start here. That's kind of where people get stuck, and they want acceptance first and foremost. That's just because they have a really a not biblical view of accountability. So let's go back, and we're going to read some. I'm going to uh, read some from my notes here. You'll set to keep up with the scriptures on the screen. Again, we have the scriptures on the card for you. But I want to walk you through some of the biblical precedents for our understanding of accountability, belonging, and community, and, and care for when it comes to the how God defines community. Um, accountability, number one. This is Proverbs 21:17. And this was the wisdom passage, again, where it says, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. And the wisdom behind this was an understanding that um, an iron tool that is consistently used, 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 and never sharpened, right, never sharpened, would become dull and not be able to accomplish its purpose. But there was this idea that iron sharpens iron, right? Like the conflict and the rubbing and the, and the, and the, and the connection of two pieces of iron kind of coming at each other and, and, and benefiting one another was like iron sharpening iron. So a friend does to a friend, meaning there is, a, there is benefit to this community in terms of you holding each other accountable. Now, what's that accountability look like? Well, here's Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. 
We're not going to neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encouraging one another, especially now that the day of, of his return is drawing near. Again, this is the writer of Hebrews writing the church, the Hebrew people, and saying, listen, guys, um, this is like when Randy talked about last week, the Lord's coming back, right? Like, that's, that's all they knew. God said he was coming back, and the Lord is returning. So, we need to continue to spur one another on to love and good works. Why? Because we are all accountable to God, not to each other. And that is a very clear distinction that sometimes people in the church have lost. You don't answer to me, right? I'm your pastor, and you don't answer to me. You don't answer to the people in your group. You don't answer to your friends. You don't answer to them. Who are they that you would answer to them? Does that make sense? That doesn't make, why would we even think that accountability means that? I mean, I'm a father and my kids are going to answer to me for a very short season of time. Am I right? And then they're not going to answer to me anymore. So about the only time it actually works. No, we're all accountable to him. So the purpose of community is that we get together and call and encourage each other to do the things he's called us to do because we are each accountable to God. He's coming back right? That's what accountability means. Accountability in community does not mean that you are accountable to each other. Who are you to be accountable to someone or to hold someone else in account? You don't. God does. But the community of faith comes together and says, hey, we are both going to be held in account for what we do and do not do. So let's find ways to encourage one another. Let's find ways to motivate each other to do what he's called us to do. Same thing goes, this is Galatians 6. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, those who are godly should gently and humbly help that person come onto the right path. Meaning that there is a call for us to do that, but how does he mean to do it? Well, gently and humbly. And then he says, but be careful not to fall in the same temptation yourself. This is an easy way of basically saying, you want to be really careful not to judge other people's sins because you are by yourself in that point sinning. Does that make sense? Does that sound circular? It's, it's the idea that you want to be extraordinarily careful about, again, who you think you are in the light of trying to help someone else through their sin. And in verse 2, he says, so you share each other's burden, and in this way you obey the law of Christ. So how am I actually supposed to help you? I'm supposed to come under that burden with you being careful that I don't fall into sin, but to share that burden with you and to, to one another, one another, so that we obey the law of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And then he goes on, this is in verse 7. He goes on again, kind of remind us about the accountability side of this. <laughs> he says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God, right? You will always, what's the word? Say it out loud. Harvest what you what? Yeah. This is why we're accountable. It says those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature are going to harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Let's not get tired of doing what is right, doing what is good. At just the right time, we're going to reap the harvest, right? A harvest of blessing if we don't give up. This is why he continues to say, sow into the ways you've been called to sow. Therefore, whenever you have the opportunity, you should be doing good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. 
Going back again to not that we don't love our neighbors ourselves, but there is a call for you to love and to serve and to, to uh, sow into the community of the family of faith. You can, when he says you cannot mock the justice of God, I, again, I'm not, gonna be, I'm not trying to be mean to anyone if you've had a personal experience, but I mean, I have had some conversation with people that talk about the church hurt and their past and, you know, the church wasn't there for me and I tried this and it didn't do it and blah, 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 blah. And sometimes I just, I, I just want to look at their history and I want to look at their, their full life and I want to go, okay, but are you just simply reaping what you've sown, which is nothing? You sowed nothing. You came in late and left early. You didn't give. You weren't a part of a group. You didn't serve. You didn't do this. You didn't do anything. And now you're upset the church wasn't there for you? You cannot mock the justice of God. You're going to get what you sow. You're going to reap what you sow, period. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you, everyone, I want you to reap the harvest of sowing into the people of faith. So why we got to get together and encourage each other? we got to continue to encourage each other to do what God's called us to do. Everybody got a better, clearer picture of accountability? Nod your head if you're with me. Nod your head even if you don't understand. It's fine. I want to feel better about myself. I'm just trying to help us get a better understanding of where maybe we've gone wrong or you've experienced it poorly. We don't need to replace accountability with acceptance. I'm telling you, you need accountability. And you need to remember who you're accountable to. And you need to remember that's one of the reasons that we need each other. Let's go real quickly. Belonging. This is, to me, where I believe the acceptance comes in. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Now, if you know anything about the, this letter to the, the Corinthians, you would know that Paul is going to have to clear up several things that are, that are dividing them. And he is going to have to clear up some theological things that they need to get straight. So that don't, don't assume this is him saying, oh, don't let anything divide you that's, spirit, you know, that's, that's theological or doctrinal. No, you, have to, you, cannot be, you cannot just say, oh, don't worry about the Trinity, it's fine. Does that make sense? Like you, can't, you can't take some of this doctrine and this theology and be like, nah, it's fine. But he is saying, there's a whole lot of other stuff that you're dividing over that you shouldn't be. Okay, You, you, you belong together as the body of Christ, as the family of faith. Don't allow these unnecessary things to come in and keep people from feeling like they belong to the family of faith. Matter of fact, early on when the church was just exploding, <laughs> Jewish people, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians were arguing, well, do they have to get circumcised? Do they have to do this? They can't eat the meat? They can't do this? And, they, and, and, the, and the wise men in Jerusalem, the wise apostles in the council in Jerusalem basically came to the thing and said, you know what? Let's not make it too difficult for those coming to faith. You know, let's, let's stop trying to divide over things that, that don't matter outside of Christ. Here's the next one. Be encouraging to one another. This is in the Thessalonians. To one another, build up hope, or build up hope so you will be able to get, be together in this. No one left out. No one left behind. I know you're already doing this. Just keep on doing it. Right? I know. I know. 
You're already doing it, but I want to continue to encourage you. Don't, don't allow anything in your community to keep anyone out from belonging. Don't let there be any divisions that keep people away. And I said this in the first service because I really didn't mean it. God's not overly impressed, you know, when he looks down at some, kind of our uniform, uh, you know, homogenous gatherings, if you will, of like-minded people in the Lake Norman area. Like, he's not like, wow, what a great group of people, you know? I'm so impressed with them. I, and I tell you why, because there is, and, and you have to be careful, there is, there are things that sometimes will hinder people from feeling like they can belong. And you have to be extraordinarily careful that you're not doing anything intentionally to hinder people from, from belonging. That can be racial uh, diversity. That can be economic, uh, uh, economic um, social standings. That can be age. So, you know, does that make sense? Like, are, are people going to be invited to your home if they're living in their car and can't shower before they get there? Like, does that make sense? Like, like are you paying attention to those things in terms of are you creating barriers of belonging? Now, again, not every, no one can meet every single person's need, and I don't believe churches were, are here to echo that, but there shouldn't be anything that intentionally keeps people from being left out at all. Like, nothing should. And that is where, again, we're accountable. We're called to to, to, to build this community and to have such community that doesn't have those things. Let's keep going. This is care, which is a big part of our church and our faith. A friend is always loyal, and a brother is born for help, for help in time of need. Another way of saying this, uh, NIV says a brother is uh, born for a time of, of adversity. What does it mean? Well, it means that having loyal friends on the mountaintop is awesome. You got to have some people to party with, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's got to be great. But this community that you have, the people that you're sowing into, a brother of faith, a brother and sister of faith is really born for the time when you are in the pickle. You're in the valley. You're in the need. Right? It's not just loyalty, not just friendships and affiliations. It's who can you call at 2 a.m. when everything has fallen apart? Who can you call? Well, if you're not sowing in anyone, and investing in community, you don't have anybody to call. So that goes back to who is it? Like, like you know that when you, when you get real brothers and sisters in Christ that can handle your junk, that can handle the confession of sin, that can handle, you know, living and sharing your burdens with you, I mean, they're born for a time of adversity. Because we're all going to have those storms we walk through. We're all going to have, as Shin said, the fires and the floods and and Jesus is walking with us, but he's also given us a community of faith. Here's another one. By the Spirit, pray in the Spirit at all times on every occasion. Stay alert and persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And that's a huge call. But praying for one another is one of the greatest things we get to do in terms of care. I, I tell our small group, oftentimes when we get together, like, we'll share prayer requests, you know. And, you know, I know how, I know that, how that can go a lot of times. This is a good gossip session. Um, and so we try to keep it internal, like we need to know what's going on with you, not your Aunt Susie. And so, you know, we pray, and, and I'm usually pretty clear to say, look, praying, sharing our prayer requests is a lot less about the prayer that's getting ready to happen <laughs> and more about the fact that we want to be able to remember each other 
throughout the week in prayer. And having a group and a group of people that can remember to reach out and be like, oh, hey, how's your brother? I hadn't heard the update on that. How's this going? Is this still okay? Are you guys still in this pickle? Do you still need anything? Like, there's power to not only being able to communicate about those things, but to be able to pray for one another, to intercede when we're struggling and when other people are struggling around us. This is from Colossians. It says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted, mer- tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why? Because when you do life with other people, it's muddy and mussy, messy and, what did I say? I say it's messy and muddy and ugly. Why? Because you don't do it right. No one's going to do it right all the time. You ever been a part of a group of people? People are sometimes dumb, right? Or they say something dumb. So, so here's Paul saying, yeah, you're going to have to clothe yourself <laughs> with kindness, okay? Especially if you're going to do life with people. And he says, make allowances for each other's faults. You have a lot of space not to be offended or forgive people who have fed you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love. Why? Because that is the thing that binds us all together in perfect harmony. Let, us, let all the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you're called to live in peace, so always be thankful. This is that, that part where you go, you know, I get it. I get it, Matt. Like, community is important. Yep, it is. The ABCs are real. Scripture makes it clear. I'm just not there right now. I, I, you know, I, I, I maybe have experienced it in the past, but I'm just not there right now. Maybe I'll have it again one day. Let me, just, let me just share this with you very quickly. This is a truth that I believe you cannot avoid, okay? Uh, Christ-centered community is essential for your spiritual growth, meaning that it's not optional. It's, it's not optional. It's essential. Why? Because when you think about spiritual disciplines, well, can I not read Scripture on my own? Yes, you can. Can I not pray on my own? Yes, you can. Can I not worship in the car on my own? Yes, you can. Can, Do I not fast on my own? Yes, you can. These spiritual disciplines are personal spiritual disciplines. That's true. But, and, 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 and even taking it one step further, coming to church is great in terms of a taking a step of growing your faith and spiritual growth. But the reason community is essential to our spiritual growth is because a gathering encourages me to follow, but our community helps me follow through. Everybody with me? You can come here and be told what you should do, and you go, mm, yeah, it's good, good stuff. Hoping it to lunch still quick. <laughs> but a community of faith, people you're doing life with, they want to know how your anger issue is going. You know? They want to know how your relationship with your kids going. They want to know if, they want to know if you're living out what you preach. Are you practicing what you preach? That's why a community is essential. A community is essential because you can, you can gather, you can go to a gathering, and it will help you follow Jesus, but the community is the one that helps you actually follow through and live out the things that you say are important to your life. 
that make sense? Now, let me just quickly say this before I close with our scripture. At Journey, we call this partnering, this whole idea of sowing and investing and sowing uh, to reap the harvest. We call it partnering because we say partnering brings community. Partnering is this activity, this action to become a partner at our church that really invests you here. It's giving and it's serving and it's being a part of, of small groups or groups. Now, understand, we, we make sure we say this in the right way, partnering at our church is not any magic solution. It's not a, it's not a turnkey magic thing. Like, investment is investment. Like, like, giving doesn't immediately create community in your life because giving just invests in the mission and ministry of the church. But I can promise you, if you're not investing in the mission and ministry of the church, you're not going to have any desire to get to know people who are also investing in the mission and ministry of the church. It's just the way it is. This is the people that come in late and leave early and, you know, do your thing. Serving, volunteering. Volunteering doesn't necessarily, just it's not the solution for community. It's the opportunity for you to meet people you do not know, for you to put yourself aside, for you to put your selfishness aside and serve someone else. And I can promise you, you experience incredible community. Every time you say, take a Sunday and you take a time and you serve coffee and you say, say hello and you, do, you work with kids and you come in here, like serving and volunteering is the opportunity to experience the community of faith that God wants for you and has for you. Groups, I say the same thing to people all the time. When you're a part of small groups or a small group of people, like it is not the solution to your life problems. Groups are not going to solve your marriage problems right? It's an opportunity to get to other people who suck at their marriage too, right? Or who are at least trying, they're working on it. Doesn't solve your strong-willed child. It's not a solution. It's getting together with other parents and going, you're not the only one who struggles with this? How we raise our kids in the admonition of the Lord, you're not the only one? I'm not the only one with this? Doesn't solve your depression, your anxiety, like but it's a good way to have healthy relationships. It's a good way to experience some healthy relationships. It's opportunities. Partnering brings community. It's the result of sowing into other people's lives. And we know. <laughs> we know by experience. We know by Scripture. It's what brings the community of faith together. I'm going to close with this passage. And this is Paul's... Uh, I'm going to read the message paraphrase of Paul's letter to the Romans, and this is that part of Romans 12 where he says, you know, live, live your life as a, as a poured out, as a sacrifice of praise to God. You know, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is God's perfect will for you. And he goes on to say this, and I love the paraphrase again of this idea. The only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and what God does for us not by what we are or what we do for him. In this way, we're like various parts of the human body. Each part gets its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. The body we're talking about is Christ's body of chosen people, right? Each of us finds our meaning and functions as part of the body. But as a chopped off finger and a chopped off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? Right? It's gross. And since we find ourselves fashioned into all these ex excellently formed and marvelously functioning parts of Christ's body, let's go ahead and be what we were made to be. 
without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something that we're not. Like, like I just love that encouragement. Like, it's, this is what it means to be part of the family of faith. If you take anything else away today, just, just remember, I love that you're here. Okay, I, love, I love that you've come and been a part of this. I love that you're, you might be traveling and you're watching online or re-catching up on the service. I, I love, I just, I listen, I love it. I think there's a value in the gathering of God's people. They met at the temples. That's what we see scripturally as our example. But I know, by personal experience, and I, I want this for every one of you, to know what it is to have a community of faith that helps you not just follow Jesus, but follow through. I want you... and. and it's easier said than done here. It's easier for me to preach it than for us to live it. But I'm telling you, going back to what he said in, 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 in Galatians, when you invest and you sow into the body, you reap a harvest of blessing. And that's what I want for every one of you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much today. My prayer is that as your word challenges us, and as we have the opportunity in this church at this time to be a part of a community of faith, give us those open doors, those open paths to seek relationships, to sow into one another, and to, to experience the, the proper way of understanding the accountability and the belonging and the care that comes from you and from a Christ-centered community following you. And where we can't do it and where we struggle to do it, God, as we talk the next few weeks, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us, help us take just the first step, even though we don't know what the rest of the steps might look like, take the first step in these journeys. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.